Increment 203 of Hebrews 2020 is about ready to come forth. And the title today is called Eschatology Realized in Jesus. And I think we might make some pioneer steps forward on the topic of eschatology and specifically as it is realized in Jesus. So I hope there's special attentive, attentiveness given to this message. The attentiveness that's required of us today is the attentiveness that only the Holy Spirit can produce in us and make effective in us. And so we'll pray, Father, we pray now that you will allow us the grace of hearing the voice of our shepherd, good shepherd who laid his life down for us, the flock, the great shepherd of the sheep, and the shepherd in whom we lack nothing. Allow us to hear his voice, Father, and therefore to receive and experience the life of the coming age in some meaningful measure. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Hebrews 7, 19b, and we're hovering over that passage still. We will also be considering what may be the peak verse of Romans 11, and that's Romans 11:32, the peak verse of Romans in its totality, a peak that is reached which only can occasion the great doxology that follows it in 11.33 to 36. So, because we've come to Hebrews through Romans, don't be surprised if we acknowledge parts of Romans as we go. Same with Revelation, same with John's Gospel. Hebrews 7.19b, the second half of that verse, goes like this by our translation. On the other hand, there's the introduction of a better hope we want to emphasize this phrase, or this clause, through which we draw near to God. Through which we draw near to God. The better hope is that through which we draw near to God. Jesus is that better hope. And it's through him that we draw near to God. How do we draw near to God through a hope? Unless the hope is a guarantee and the hope is an assurance. And this is exactly the idea in Hebrews 10.19 where the theme is sustained and brought to an exhortation where it says, we have bold confidence one of the catchwords of Hebrews, parisia. Parisia, bold confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living highway that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Hebrews ten nineteen to 20. The entering in, as, it call, as it's called, or the introduction 
or even the debut, we could say, of a better hope is the realization, that's a key word that I'll be using also, the realization or fulfillment of an infinitely superior hope than that which was held forth by the law and its prescription of offerings and sacrifices. This better, another catchword in Hebrews, in fact, a key word used 13 times in Hebrews, this better, or as we've seen recently, infinitely superior hope, having been introduced speaks of a realized eschatology. Now, if you've done any studying on eschatology, especially modern eschatology, you have heard that term before, realized eschatology. E.P. Sanders offers a definition for realized eschatology in his book about Paul. Quote, realized eschatology is the belief that some of the events that are usually expected at the end of days, in parentheses he says the eschaton, we get the word eschatology from that, eschaton, I'll begin it again, realized eschatology is the belief that some of the events that are usually expected at the end of days, the eschaton, are occurring in the present or have recently occurred in the past. Sanders adds, quote, some scholars have changed the term to eschatology in the process of being realized. And this suits very well the passages in Paul's letters that we will consider, writes Sanders. Eschatology in the process of being realized. That's one expression used by theologians. Now and not yet. Well, that's a more popular formulation. Eberhard Jungel coined a better one than that, even now, but then completely. That kind of captures the sense of a realized or a partially realized or a in the process of being realized eschatology. Now, all these turns of phrase are more or less, more or less satisfactory. I don't find them completely satisfactory, and so we're going to work on one that is. All these turns of phrase that we just discussed are more or less satisfactory expressions for an eschatology or a word about the end things which is set forth in several instances in John's Gospel, for example. Each instance of this is in Jesus' own words. There's this. An hour is coming and is now here. An hour is coming and is now here. Both are true. An hour is coming and an hour is now. An hour is coming and is now here, Jesus said. 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That's if John 4.23. That is a verse, incidentally, that I hope to elaborate as we get further on into Hebrews, but not right now. And again, Jesus says, and these are Jesus' words, quote, I'm telling you the solemn truth that the hour is coming and now is. The hour is coming and now is. That the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's John four twenty or John rather five twenty five. Two instances of Jesus' expression of a realized eschatology. And then one more time in John twelve thirty one. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be decisively thrown out. Please notice that construction. It's only in Jesus can this construction be sensible. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be decisively thrown out. Now that's my translation. I translate decisively thrown out because Jesus uses both the very strong action verb ekbalo, which means to throw out, But he also uses the preposition exo. So it's like to throw out, out. Giving the idea of being decisively thrown out. The prince ruler of this world, also known as the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And the prince of the power of airborne spirits in Ephesians 2, 2. Well, he had suffered many temporary defeats in the course of history, and you can see many of those in the Old Testament. His temporary defeats in the course of history. But through the Christ event, and by Christ event we mean incarnation, suffering, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, (coughs) exaltation of Jesus Christ, all as a unity, By the Christ event, or through the Christ event, the destroyer was completely destroyed. The devil was completely destroyed, is the word deployed. This is firmly stated by Jesus in John 12, 31, and again in 16, 11, where Jesus says, The ruler of this world has been judged. Same Declaration with different words is used by John in 1 John 3, 8. John the Elder, who says, quote, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, colon, to destroy the works of the devil. And by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews two fourteen to 15. Consequently, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, he also became a partaker of the same, that is Jesus, so that through experiencing death, he would render or to combat the one who held dominion over death, that being the slanderer, and liberate all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. Therefore, 
the destruction of the works of the devil include the destruction of his work of enslaving people to fear, the fear of death. Now, that's not to say, and this is always important qualification, that's not to say that the devil, a.k.a. Satan, a.k.a. the old serpent, is not still active or that he's not still opposing the advancement of the kingdom of God. To me, the ever-ready analogy to this is that of King Saul, to whom Samuel the prophet said, but now your reign will not endure. Now your reign will not endure. The prophet Samuel said that, speaking for Yahweh, to King Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 14, for King Saul's failure to execute Agag and the best of the sheep, as we know. Even though the end of his reign, Saul's reign, had been announced in 1314, Saul continued his activity against David until, in 1 Samuel 28, 18, Samuel said to him on the eve of Saul's consultation of a witch and fortune teller, two things happened the next day. The consultation with a witch and his death. Which is worse? Well, I'll tell you what's worse than death is a consultation with a witch and a fortune teller. And so in 1 Samuel 28, 18, Samuel said to him on the eve of of his consultation of a witch fortune teller and his death by his own sword, quote, Yahweh has torn the kingdom, or even better, the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. So just like the old man, Pelias Anthropos, the old serpent, Now, here's a point of doctrine that's shocking, so brace yourselves. The old, just like the old man, our old false self, the old serpent, as he's called in Revelation 20 and verse 2, is slated for utter destruction. The utter destruction that accompanies complete redemptive transformation. Thanks to Jesus, the Son of Man was lifted up like a serpent on a cruciform pole. Interesting that he was a serpent on a pole. John three thirteen to 14. And so the serpent, all the way back in Genesis 3, 1, where we first meet him, is slated for, or really, it already happened in the cross, the utter destruction that accompanies a redemptive transformation. This reality is already realized in Jesus and was already realized in Jesus' writhing agony on the cross. In any case, the decisive judgment and expulsion of the tyrant of this world 
occurred when, quote, God spoke decisively in a son in these last days. Hebrews 1-2. When God spoke decisively in a son in these last days, he spoke in Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised, ascended, exalted. So what may be associated only with the end of days or the very last things in prophecy has already effectively occurred in the Christ event, or we could even say in Jesus. Even though the full and experiential universal realization is yet to be universally observable and experienced in the parousia, or the second appearing of Christ. The hour is coming and now is. So it's not a matter of now versus future. But now and future. As one reality, we could say. What is now is also what is coming. Now... We are risen together with Christ, says Colossians 3.1. Coming is our resurrection together with Christ, bodily speaking. What is now is also coming, and what is coming is also now. It's not a matter of our resurrection with Christ only taking place in the future. It is now and in the future. Now that's not because we are raised from the dead bodily now already. It's because in Jesus all of this is realized and done already. In Jesus. Now the talk of two characters named Hymenaeus and Philetus who preached that, quote, the resurrection had happened already, was cancerous talk, says Paul. Cancerous because they were teaching that the general resurrection of all of humanity had already occurred in 2 Timothy 2, 17-18. And that was effectively to imply with the Epicurean cult of the days, of that day, that this is all there is. In other words, to say that the resurrection, bodily resurrection, has occurred already is essentially to say, this is all there is. It doesn't get any better than this. This is it right here. That's cancerous talk. But the realized eschatology of the New Testament is that only in Jesus Christ has the resurrection happened and that the actual bodily resurrection of all the dead and the bodily change of those who are alive at his second appearance, though already realized in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, has not yet actually and observably happened 
from the standpoint and in the experience of all humanity and all of creation. That which has effectively happened bodily in Jesus has not yet been experienced bodily and observably by all. And this will inevitably be an observable reality, an experienced reality, capital R. It is now a reality in Jesus. Jesus is the present reality of the future. The resurrection reality, this resurrection reality, may be expressed in a modicum now, and experienced, that is, in a very modest degree, to a very modest degree, and in a very modest experience by those in mortal bodies who are believing, by those gifted with faith, in other words. Realized eschatology is not what was fulfilled in A.D. 70, incidentally. Again, realized eschatology is not what was fulfilled in A.D. 70, but in A.D. 30. Realized eschatology is not a matter of a fulfillment of this or that event, but a matter of what is already fulfilled in Jesus, and of what is therefore guaranteed to be realized and fulfilled in all human beings and in all of creation. Let's call that a thesis, T-H-E-S-I-S. Realized eschatology is not a matter of a fulfillment of this or that event, but a matter of what is already fulfilled in Jesus and of what is therefore guaranteed to be realized and fulfilled in all human beings and in all of creation. So it seems that the truest view of realized eschatology is that all eschatology is fully realized already in Jesus and that it only has yet to be fully manifested and experienced by all of creation. Instead of talking about a partially realized eschatology, we might be better served to talk about a fully realized eschatology that has yet to be fully and universally manifested. In Paul's epistles, there's this realized eschatology. Most obviously, Paul speaks of a future resurrection, but also of the fact that we have been raised together with Christ. Colossians 2.12 and 3.1 also Romans 6.4. And that we should acknowledge that our old selves have been crucified with Christ in Romans 6.6. 6. <clears throat> Both John and Paul agree that something of future world can be experienced here and now in this present evil age, Galatians 1.4, and in these mortal human shells that we occupy 2 Corinthians 4.7 and 4.11. Even though the full and glorious experience of future world 
is withheld for the telos, T-E-L-O-S, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and following. But Jesus is the telos in Re- Revelation 21, 6 and 22, 13. All of this will be in print so that you can examine what I'm telling you in the written form, which is its final form. No, it isn't the final form. The final form, hopefully, is written in you as a living epistle. Incidentally, in all of Paul's eschatology, never once does he mention a place of post-mortem punishment for unbelievers, nor does he ever refer to a hell that non-Christians go to after their death. Now, if Paul is a preacher in the modern sense and doesn't mourn people of hell, he's got to be held accountable for that. Well, the reason he doesn't warn of hell is because there was no such place to warn about. On the other hand, Paul does speak rather emphatically of the saving mercy of God, which God will show, and speaking eschatologically, already has shown in Jesus Christ and him crucified. A saving mercy he has shown and will show to all. Romans 11.32 In fact, let's consider Romans 11.32 precisely because it speaks powerfully of a realized eschatology. It may be suggested that as soteriology is all in Christ and thus is swallowed up by Christology, we're talking about theology here, it may be suggested that as soteriology is all in Christ and thus swallowed up by Christology, so also eschatology is all embodied and therefore swallowed up by Christology or the study of Christ. Said in another way, this is always helpful, another way of saying it, both salvation and all the last things are already fully realized in Jesus and will be manifested and experienced by all of the creation, diachronically, over the course of all time, that is, and all of humanity in all of its times. Now consider Romans 11.32, which is the climax and conclusion of the vital section of Romans that began with Romans 9.1, and I think it's still the climactic verse and summation of everything that began with Romans 1.1. That's Romans 11.32. For God has shut up all human beings in disobedience, and that also means unbelief, in disobedience and unbelief. God has shut up all human beings in disobedience and unbelief in order to have mercy on them all. Here's a question. When did or when will God have mercy on all human beings? How about this one? When did God shut up all human beings in disobedience and unbelief? If not, when he shut up Jesus in that cell. 
on Calvary's cross. When did God, or when will God, what is, is what's future. When will God have mercy on all human beings? The answer must not be confined to an as yet unrealized future. Even though saving mercy has not yet been experienced by all of humanity, as is plain enough from history and obvious from current events and the ongoing suffering of human beings, in fact, and of all creatures. Romans 11.32 reveals the real meaning of what is called double predestination also. Real double predestination is not some rejected and others elected. It is all shut up in disobedience and all shown mercy. All of this happened in Jesus. Both sides, if we may call it, of a double predestination were experienced by and in Jesus. He who became sin experienced the rejection of all of humanity in their sin and disobedience. And this was the means for God to show saving mercy to all. In his resurrection from the dead, Jesus experienced the saving mercy that God intends to show to all. Therefore, in Jesus Christ and him crucified is both the shutting up of all in disobedience and unbelief and the showing of saving mercy on all through Jesus Christ's obedience, faith, and faithfulness. Jesus experienced the hell of being shut up in disobedience and unbelief when he became sin. If you insist on talking about an eschatological reality called hell, then this reality was already realized in Jesus Christ and him crucified. You want to talk about the rich man in hell? Well, you have to talk about Isaiah being, Isaiah 53, 9, and Messiah being with the rich man in his death. For what could be a better description of hell than being made to be sin? You tell me a better description of hell. Being made to be sin as a sinless one. Or becoming a curse. Becoming the curse. Galatians 3.13. Become a sin, becoming sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Becoming a curse so that the blessing of justification would come not only to Jews but also to Gentiles. And the blessing of the Spirit also. Galatians 3.13 and 14, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So in his comment on Romans 11.32, in the epistle to the Romans, Karl Barth wrote, 
And I believe the Epistle to the Romans was a book written by Karl Barth in 1919, which means 103 years ago. On 1132, and I have that commentary of Romans. In fact, I bought it again because the first time I basically made it unreadable through my underlinings and notes and highlightings. And the first thing I did when I got my new copy of Romans the Epistle by Karl Barth was go to his comment on Romans 11.32. It's worth reading. It's only a paragraph, but man is it dense and it's phenomenal. But in among that or within that comment on Romans 11.32, he said, this is the hope of the church. We're back to hope now, a better hope. You better hope, the better hope. But again, Karl Barth wrote this, this is the hope of the church. Speaking of Romans 11.32, mercy upon all. There is no other hope, he says. Would that the church might comprehend it exclamation point I echo that would that the church would comprehend this hope of universal mercy it's a realized hope but it's an also an expectation what is now is future what is future is now then Barth cites Luther Martin Luther who also commented on this verse and this is Sometimes Luther, I, I can't agree with everything Luther said. I certainly can't agree with everything Calvin said. And far more can I, far more I disagree with Beza, who followed Calvin and rode that damnable double predestination train into a disaster. But Luther once in a while said something very striking. It's like a slap in the face. In, to wake us up, not to hurt us. Barth cites Luther, who also commented on this verse in Romans 11.32, and he said this, this is what Luther wrote. Take to heart this great text. By it, the whole righteousness of the world of men is damned. Man, do I like that. The whole righteousness of the world of men is damned. By it, he goes on to say, the righteousness of God alone is exalted. That reminded me of Psalm 71, worth rereading and reading once in a while. And then he adds, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Now, I'll go with that. The righteousness of God alone is exalted here in Romans, especially in 1132. But the righteousness of God, I would amend by saying it's not by faith unless the faith you're talking about is Jesus' faithfulness. So I would dare to amend Luther's take on this by saying, the righteousness of God, which is by the faith and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But these comments are nevertheless well taken. Luther's words pack a potent combination punch. By it, the whole righteousness of the world of men is damned. By it, the righteousness of God alone is exalted. Now, let's combine Barth and Luther and apply this to Hebrews by saying this. By Romans 11.32, we can also conclude that Jesus is the introduction 
of a better hope than could ever be offered by the law and by the animal sacrifices which it prescribed. Jesus is this hope. Jesus is the hope of the church and of all humankind and creation. This hope, this Jesus, is the hope of universal saving mercy. It's a realized hope, but it's also an expectation, both in Jesus. This hope, this Jesus, is the hope of a universal saving mercy and the future world in which all things have been made new. This hope is realized already in Jesus and guaranteed to be manifested to all and experienced by all when God is all in all. In Jesus, God is already all in all. In Jesus, all have already been shown mercy. When we see Jesus, we see him in whom all were shut up in disobedience and unbelief. And in seeing Jesus, we see the mercy of God, which he has shown to all. And that's saving mercy in Titus 3.5. The hour of this saving mercy now is and is coming. Now is the day of salvation, Paul boldly stated in 2 Corinthians 6.3 in connection with Isaiah 40. Nine, nine, I believe, eight and nine, maybe. Now is the day of salvation, and the day of the parousia of our Lord Jesus is coming and is even now imminent, for he will appear a second time, bringing the universal salvation that he wrought for all already, the salvation that is embodied in him. Now, all other New Testament writers have some form or some version of a realized eschatology. Not least the teaching pastor who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Hebrews. This realized eschatology in Hebrews has an obvious referent in Hebrews 6, 4 to 5, in which the PT speaks of, quote, a category of persons who had once been enlightened, who had experienced the heavenly gift, and who had become companions of the Holy Spirit, who had tasted the good word of God and the dynamics of the age to come, indicating that it is possible and that, in fact, it is probable that there is a category of people who experience the dynamics of the age to come in the present time. A less obvious example of a realized eschatology is found right here in our passage in Hebrews 7.19b, which speaks of, quote, the introduction of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Notice that phrase, draw near to God. Notice the phrase, through which or through whom we draw near to God. It's perhaps natural to think of ourselves as drawing near to God in our death, our physical death, that is, or of drawing near to God at the end of time, the end of the world. 
But we're faced here with drawing near to God even now. Though then, that is, when we physically die, and also when time as we know it ends, all of us will not only draw near to God, but God will be all in all in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And God, who will be all in all, is already all in all in Jesus. God is indeed the savior of all human beings, but especially of those who believe, because those who believe may draw near to God through Jesus Christ even now. Jesus is already in future world, and that we are in him in future world is true and real in a now and in a coming sense, both. To cite Barth once more, and this is profound, Christ is the ego of the coming world. The I, capital I, of the coming world. Christ is the ego, the self, of the coming world. He himself is that coming world, we could say. So, here's what I say. So I... Ego, was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I, ego, live. Yet not I, ego, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20 So Jesus, the ego of future world, already lives in me and in you. He is the real ego in me, my real self. He is my real self. Ego, not I, but Christ. Jesus, the ego of future world, already lives in me. He already lives in you. He is the real ego in me and in you. He is yours and my true self. And I live even now in the flesh, said Paul, and we can echo this in our own way, by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved us, gave himself for us. We don't frustrate the grace of God by living otherwise. Drawing near to God, then, is a soteriological construct in Hebrews. The Greek word is engizo. In the text here, engizo, E, G, G-I-Z-O. N-Gizo. Usually when, traditionally when double G's are brought into the English transliteration, it comes down as E-N-G. Not everybody does that, but I prefer to because it's a little better easily pronounced. N-Gizo. Draw near. It's deployed in this expositional part of Hebrews in 719 here, but its synonym is in the heart of the exhortation part of Hebrews in 1022. It says, let us draw near. But however, engizo is not used here, but a synonym of it is used, pros erkomai, meaning to approach. And so, 
the synonym is used in Hebrews 10.22. The word draw near, English, draw near, 719b, can also be found, therefore, the English draw near in Hebrews 10.22, even though a different Greek word, a synonym, is used. Proserkomai is also deployed in Hebrews 